Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Empire Ears. In collaboration with Grammy-winning producers, engineers, and their family of touring musicians, Empire Ears has developed a line of in-ear monitors that deliver what you need for every mix. When it comes to unrivaled stage clarity or needing a flat and honest reference for your latest studio mix, Empire Ears has got you covered no matter where you find yourself. And now your host. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am A.L. Levy. And I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Lamb of God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Hello, everybody. Today's episode's a cool one. I got to speak to one of my production heroes, Mr. David Bendeth. And let me just say that after talking to him, I'm not at all surprised that he's had the success he's had or, you know, become as great as he is at production because it seems like his whole life was just engineered to create a great producer, as you will learn. Everything from the way he was brought up to his formative years as an A&R executive at CBS International and, uh, as well as vice president of A&R for BMG Canada. This guy was in every aspect of the music industry, like I said, as a musician, as an executive, and he also got to work with all these great producers. So he had all the greatest producers and mixers as his mentors. Of course he was going to become great. Obviously, you know, he's already a super intelligent guy with a ton of his own talent, but then it was... Developed that talent was developed through mentorship and through experience, and that's what led to him becoming a great producer. And when you look at the lives of great people, you know, you, they don't just they aren't just spawned great. There's always a great backstory, and there's always real intelligent and wise choices that they've made along the way, which I love to get into. And that's why I had a great time talking to him. And I hope that you are inspired by this episode, entertained by this episode, and it gives you some food for thought about what kinds of moves you can make in your life to try to uncover your greatness. Enjoy. David Bendeth, welcome to the URM podcast. Honored to have you here. Thank you for taking the time. How are you doing today? I am awesome. How are you guys doing down there? Where, where are you in Florida? I'm actually in Atlanta. Um, the We have a headquarters in Florida, but I live in Atlanta. I try to not go to Florida any more than I absolutely need to. Right. I understand. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a bit of a hellhole. Where are you up north? I am about 12, 15 miles due west of New York, Manhattan in New Jersey. Okay, Got it. Have you always been there? Well, for the last 20 years or so, yeah, I have. Okay, got it. So let's just dive right in. Uh, one thing that I've been curious about uh, with you, uh, 
is something that I hear from lots of producers and musicians who have you know been at it a while, which is they say that they didn't choose music, music chose them. They didn't do it because because they wanted to. They did it because they had no choice. Do you feel the same way when you were starting out? Um, I think to a certain degree. I mean, I was lucky enough to be able to be born in a in a musical time where it was really just starting to get exciting. You know, I was born in, in the mid-50s. So by the time I was a teenager, you know, music was kind of hitting what I consider to be one of the peaks of the last hundred years as far as creativity goes. So when you're surrounded by something like that from for, you know, that, that whole time period from the age of probably eight right through to 16, 17, um, it... It, it it kind of you know became part of me, and certainly I gravitated towards it. I knew at a very very early age, maybe three, that I was going to to be in music. I think that's a, a my 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 parents tell me that at least, or they had told me that. Three. That's that's interesting. You say that because that's the um, that's the age I started playing music as well. Apparently, I started playing piano and violin at three. Um, obviously I don't remember, but I made them make me, uh, learn how to play. So in the, so you were a teenager when basically rock and roll was transforming into what we know it today, kind of. Well, you have to imagine a, you know, a 12 year old, 13 year old, which is really the age today kids get turned on to music. Yeah. And that year for me, all in one year was like... Cream and Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell. I mean, it was just such an incredible time. You also had a war happening in Vietnam, which also spawned a lot of phenomenal artists and a lot of songs that really wanted to change the world. And so to be there, you know, and of course, when you're a teenager, you want to change the world too because you're fed up with your parents' world, whatever that was. And certainly it was something that I wanted to become a part of in the sense that I would hang out at at night and we would listen to music records. It was vinyl back then and record players and certainly any concert we could go. I mean, I, I remember seeing Jimi Hendrix when I was 13 and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. So things like that are going to change your life. They're going to affect the way you feel about certain things. Uh, and certainly I saw Cream. I saw Led Zeppelin when I was 14. Uh, it was one of their first shows in North America. There was like 700 people there. So yeah, it, it was a great time to be to be loving music. So uh, it seems to me like it's, you know, when you're 12, 13, 14, those are transformative years anyways, but you had your transformative years at a time period where the world and society as we know it were evolving rapidly. Yes. Uh, you know, politically, everything was changing. And when that always happens, great music always follows. I mean, it's just an eventuality. Um, anything to do with the way the world is changing, music is a mirror. I've heard people who were around in the 60s who experienced that transformation who have said that they haven't experienced a, uh, I guess, such a tumultuous time period up until now, since then. Do, do you think that's accurate? I, I do, although I'm trying to think. I mean, the obvious fallout for, for music right now because of those things is rap music. So that's become the new, you know, re rebellion music. Yes, definitely. 
But I'm really not sure it has the same impact of what I had to deal with and what I had to see in the sense that pop music is still very, very prevalent. And and rap has become pop music to a certain degree. So the way I see this, I think you're right. It 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 it, it hasn't been tumultuous, but we're, I think what we're talking about here is 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 sort of a bigger movement worldwide. It was about love. It was about peace. It was about hate to a certain degree. It was about war. Um, so the music was 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 different than it is now for different reasons. Yes, but I can see why you would say that. I just don't think it was anywhere near the degree and i'm not trying to sort of say well hey i'm an old man it was a lot better back then i just remember it being completely different that's all well i'm 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 curious about that difference because uh you know i wasn't there so i don't know I, i'm just taking your word for it but i guess it just it from what i understand even if it was different there hasn't been anything there hasn't been anything quite like it since um is what I'm understanding. That that is, that is true. I mean, certainly, as I grew up, um, there was not two ways to do something. You know, there was always like, this is the right way to do something. You know, if you wanted to learn to be an engineer or whatever, a producer or a guitar player, it was it was a whole different way to learn how to do it. It was, you know, the right way and the wrong way. When you started learning, so I guess you'd learn how to do things the right way. I'm guessing if that was the only option you had, did you go for, did you seek out formal instruction? I did. And, you know, my parents were non-supportive. Um, they wanted me to go to college and, and, and university. And that was really, really a big deal for them. My father was a doctor and, you know, that was his plan. Understood. And at the time, like my high school class in Toronto was, really crazy like i had getty lee from rush and alex lifeson the guitar player from rush and i had howie mandel and you know the 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 talk show guy and i had uh, alana miles in my class and garth richardson who produced the first rage against the machine yeah he lived right behind me with his father who was also a very very famous producer he did night moves for bob seeger so I would hang out with all these people, you know, and, and they were all in, at times, I could keep going on that list, by the way, but there was definitely something in the water where I was. Um, I mean, Rush played at my girlfriend's Sweet 16 party. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, there was a lot of musicians where I lived and then we would go to other high schools and we would meet other players. Were they Rush yet? Like, were they, I mean, were they like a big local band? They weren't um, big, but they were 15. Yeah. And they were playing high schools and junior high schools. Yeah, they were playing Led Zeppelin and David Bowie covers. That's actually kind of mind-blowing. Do you mind if we talk about that for a second? Because, the, you know, we all know bands that uh, we've watched go from a local band to well-known. But, you know, Rush, I'd say that's a little bit beyond well-known. You know, they're fucking legends. I think it... That's fascinating. Could you tell that they were going to be great or anything, or were they just some high school band you knew? Look, they certainly played the hell out of Led Zeppelin and David Bowie. They were playing, they were kind of interspersing their own songs. Uh, at the beginning of this, there was a different drummer in the band. I feel like when Neil Peart joined the band that they definitely opened up in a completely different way. But 
I, you know, they were playing bars too when I was 17. So, you know, I think that they had a future. I think Neil Peart was the guy though that that took that band to the next level. I'm, the band I saw was more of a cover band and one of 20 that were in my area. Got it. So something interesting, I, a parallel to my own life. My dad is a pretty well-known symphony conductor, and so I grew up around lots of great musicians just my whole life. They were just around. They're his friends, and you know that's just who we hung out with because you know musicians hang out with musicians. So it was just a normal thing to have like uh, the guest soloist for who's playing with the symphony that we can come by the house and use our piano or something. You know, that's just how I grew up. So I grew up just assuming that uh, I grew up just assuming that it was totally possible to to make make this work because you know I didn't think anything different. I mean, I had friends' parents who didn't think it was possible, but to me, everyone around me was just doing it and was great. So I just figured I'm going to go into music because you know I didn't even question it. Um, from being, I know you just said that. Uh, I know you just said that your parents were non-supportive, but from being around so many people. Uh, that were, you know, doing stuff and active and good at it. Do you think that that helped just push you in the direction just to go into it? Do you think that that environment in and of itself was supportive and formative? I do, you know, and I, I think I changed my friends as I got older because my search for knowledge on music started to change. You know, I mean, remember I was listening to hard rock music from the age of probably 12 through to 16 and I really hadn't had my light bulb moment yet. Um, and then I ran into a few people that changed my life musically and how I think about music. So I was lucky to be able to to, to know people because we would hang out in the bars and we would, we started to go see jazz on the weekend, it was matinees. And then I ran into a couple of people that sat me down and said, okay, look, you know, this is, what you've been listening to and it's good, but this is the next thing. And at that time it was fusion music and real players. It was the Mahavishnu Orchestra or it was Chick Corea and Return to Forever. And it was, you know, the Brecker Brothers and all these phenomenal bands. Um, and then somebody sort of sat down and played Miles Davis for me. And I think that was the end of it. I, I heard Bitches Brew and I, I, I went, okay, forget it. What I know, this is what I want to know. Um, and then I finally graduated high school. I was 17. And the first thing I did was was leave home, you know, permanently at that age to go to England, where I felt I would have a better chance in 1973 of creating a career for myself because that was where it was all coming from. I'd been getting Melody Maker and New Mus Musical Express magazine sent to me every Saturday and I would read about all these different bands and gigs. And at that time, it was the height of phenomenal music. You know, it was three years after Dark Side of the Moon and Bowie and all of these great acts. So I, I got to be in England. I worked in a record store and I played on the weekends. And that was my beginning of my professional career. When you say it was the beginning of your professional career, did, did you give yourself any other option? 
Well, yeah, I mean, I got into university and that was going to be my option. And fair enough. The idea of it really blew me away. Like I was not, I was glad to get out of school. I didn't like school that much. You know, I passed, I got my high school education. Um, but I was always destined to sort of be a guy that was a, was going to go out on the road and I was going to play guitar. And that's, that's, that was my instrument. That's what I loved. And I was going to join bands and I was going to tour and play with people. That was what I was going to do. And that's exactly what I did. I wanted to make records too. I mean, that was number one as well. How did, uh, how did it transition from guitar into the David Bendeth we know you as? Well, that's a culmination of probably 15 years. I mean, eventually, after touring for about 10 years, I got fed up with that. And Fair enough. You know, at that time, there was not a lot of tour buses that we could all hire. And we were traveling or always in a van, you know, with a trailer. And it got, in Europe, we would get the, the double-decker bus. That was okay. But, you know, now I'm 30 and I needed a job. I mean, I had a son, I had a baby, and I, and, and I needed a job. And there there was back then a, a bunch of different labels now there's three there there was about 20 back then um and i had heard that cbs records which is now sony were looking for a creative staff producer and i went and applied for the job and i got the job you know working on the corporate side as and a creative side at the same time so my gig was to go into the studio make records mix and also happened to sign artists and attend meetings and do all that, that other stuff. So that was kind of like where it transitioned. Got it. So you're 30, you just toured for 10 to 15 years, you're over it. What kind of opportunities were there, though, back then for transitioning into the studio world? Were, would you say it was more abundant than now, or was it much harder to get into? No, it was pretty easy. I mean, there was a ton of studios. You have to remember, I was in a city like Toronto. There had to be, you know, a hundred recording studios there. It was a city of three million people. You know, back then, I think every major city in the world had a hundred studios. You know, whether it was L.A., New York, London, Nashville. So you could go in and work as, a, as an assistant. You could go in there and, you know, engineer on the weekends and make dance music, whatever it was going to be. I think there was way more opportunity back then to learn your craft. So when so when you started doing that, how did you how did you first learn to record properly? Well, I had assisted other produce, producers. Like, got it. I had worked with. We all came out of a studio in Toronto called Phase One, which was in Scarborough, it, like a, a suburb of Toronto, and it was like a pretty major studio. So. At that time, it was like Rich Chicky, who just produced all the Rush records. He was there. Randy Staub, who did the Metallica record and Nickelback. I've had Rich Chicky on before. Yeah, Rich was there. Cool guy. A guy called Bill Kennedy. Uh, there was Bob Ezrin, who was like a mentor, and Jack Richardson, who was Garth, Garth Richardson's father, you know, who did all the Lou Reed and Guess Who. And and then Garth, was in his. he assisted for his father. I mean, there had to be 10 of us all there at the same time, so... You know, it was a great environment. You could learn as much as you wanted to learn. I mean, the first thing we learned how to do was load a dishwasher properly <laughs> and unload it. Pro we had a set of instructions to do that. More, I imagine that that was more just to make sure that you could follow instructions. They told us that if we didn't know how to do that, we couldn't run a signal path. 
Fair enough. You know, it's funny. The guys that I've had on who talk about those types of tasks and how they came up through the studio uh, through the studio industry, you know, obviously starting by making coffee, loading dishwashers and all that, all that stuff. They said that, um, like for instance, my friend Josh Duell, who got hired by Lincoln Park for like 10 years, the reason he got the opportunity to work for them was because he never fucked up their drink orders or lunch orders. So he always got that right. Then when the time came to, you know, their engineer got sick or something and they needed some edits, they, they decided to give him a shot precisely because he never fucked up their drink orders and his attention to detail was there. Um, they it they felt like because he cared that much about something, you know, trivial, like what you want in your coffee, that he would then care that much more about uh, getting, you know, this drum edit or this vocal edit correct. And I imagine that it's the same type of thing. Um if you can't even load the dishwasher correctly, how are they going to trust you with, you know, a record? You know, actually, it was a lot different than that, the way I remember it. We would get screamed at, like, and and threatened to be thrown out of the studio if we did, did something wrong. And there was a hierarchy, and you had to respect that. I mean, it was, there was no talking back or talking behind people's backs or, you know, if you did something wrong, the whole place knew about it. It was terrible. And you would get berated, um, and that was that was that was the law of of the studio. So, you know, I wish it was just making drinks. I mean, they used to send me on trips to go get things when they didn't even need them, just to see if I would go somewhere and where I'd go. I mean, there was a lot of mind games, but it was all training. Yeah, I mean, how how long did that time period last for you? Like, I could say the the hazing or the the for the character building, if you want to call it that, enough for me to never be an engineer. <laughs> so is that is that what made you want to be the producer? Yeah, that, that's that's incredible. <laughs> you know, the guys that that were, that were the most patient and the calmest and the most level headed and the most logical and the most practical were always the engineers. They were always chill, and the producers were always the ones that were absolutely nuts. That's just the way that was. And I never remember it being any different. So do you think that um, you understood that your personality or I guess your psychological makeup was that of a producer more than an engineer and that showed you that this was the proper path? Or you just hated the hazing so much that you said, fuck this, I'm doing that? The truth is I was never really any good at it. You know, I never liked patching. I never liked recalls which is what the job was. I never liked running to get dinner. I never liked trying to, you know, I was the guy that they would find it, find the tube that's broken in the amp. You know, to this day, I know how to go through an amp and find the wrong tube and see which one's glowing and exchange it. And I mean, I was a guy that was more of like, try to fix things, but because they'd make me do that or they'd make me, they try and make me do technical things, but I, I had a basic understanding how everything worked. I mean, it wasn't a matter of that. It's just that my passion lied so much more with music than it did mm -hmm. with the technical side. Well, there there are people whose passion is the technical side. I say let them let them do that. Like I know people. I know that the the technical side is a little different now. But for instance, 
Uh, you know, the, those guys who are happy to edit drums 16 hours a day. I mean, I feel like in that time period, they would have been the same people who would look for the, the broken tube or who were great, would have been great at fixing a board. But like that type of personality that, you know, they, they are very happy doing that. Like that is their calling. So I feel like it's very important and correct me if, you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on this, but I think it's important for people to understand what drives them and what they're good at. And if what drives them is not the technical side of things, that's okay. You should find what it is that drives you. You'll do way better at something that you, you know, something that motivates you and energizes you than, you know, trying to fit a square peg into a round hole. I think technology today has also made it completely different because, you know, the, the set of rules that applied to us back then, as far as working with SSLs and Neves and outboard gear, doesn't really apply to anybody today because no one owns any of that gear. You know, it's all about computers and plugins, and that's become the new technical side of things. So, you know, it's almost like anybody that with a computer that plays a video game can learn how to make a record if you spend long enough at it. And the other part of it is that, you know, we had somebody looking over us when we were doing everything. And, you know, that was a totally, no, nobody's looking over anybody right now. You sit in your room and you do what you do. And it's, and it's, it's all YouTube guesswork. You know, if you want to know about something, you Google it and you pull up a YouTube video. So yeah, it's a different, it's a different thing. And the engineer of today is, is not like the engineer of yesterday. And that, that might be a good thing or a bad thing. It certainly has streamlined that job and made it a lot simpler. Um, but, but, but again, I was, I, I do it, but I'm not attracted to that part of what I do. And I'm not as passionate as some of, some of the phenomenal engineers I've got to work with in my career. And I, those guys that, that do that all day you still blow me away at what they do and their passion for it. And I'm really happy to focus on what I'm best at, which is more more of the making of the music itself. When you figured that out, you know, was it like a light bulb went off in your head? What was it like when you figured that out? Or did you go in kind of knowing that already? No, I mean, to be honest with you, like... I really wanted to mix because every time I would do anything, somebody else mixed it. And it would always come back to me and it would always sound weird. And I remember spending months and months on certain projects and then getting the final thing back and going, what the hell? This has nothing to do with what I recorded and the kick drum and the snare and the way the vocals were and guitar solos were low. And so it, it this happened over and over for years. And the labels... Back then, it was very political who they used to mix. It would be the same 10 guys every day. It's probably not that much different, but it's certainly a lot more people are getting the chance to mix. But I I, I hated my mixing, and, it, and, and I was very frustrated at the fact that I hated my mixing, and I never liked what anybody else did. So I became this impossible person that could you could never make me happy. Every, every time I would do anything, I hated it. Because I couldn't do it, and neither could anybody else. So that was my light bulb moment for me, you know, somewhere around 1991, where I I realized, okay, you know, you better start to learn about this or you're not <laughs> going to get anywhere. And so I did everything out of frustration pretty well. A frustration is a great 
motivator. And especially if, you know, I imagine that it sounds to me like you're very comfortable with people, you know, like, like you said, with engineers, your mind is blown by those people who are passionate about that thing you're not passionate about. I imagine that if you were happy with other people's mixes and not, you know, you didn't, it didn't frustrate you, then you probably wouldn't have uh, gravitated towards it quite as much. But since nobody could do what you were imagining in your head and you couldn't do it yet, that was a huge opportunity to to create something, I think. Well, again, work, working at a label, I had a phenomenal opportunity. I mean, I had an opportunity that probably not many people have had. And I think people forget that about me. I worked for labels for 17 years. Mm -hmm. So what did I do? I went and sat next to Tom Lord Algae and Chris Lord Algae and Jack Joseph Puig and Andy Wallace and Michael Brower for weeks on end. I was there watching them mix the projects I was working on. So if you, if you sat next to 10 mixers for two weeks at a time, you're going to learn something. Of course, that's great. And so I had that opportunity I think nobody had. And when something was wrong, I got to experience that firsthand as well because we would play the mix for the band or the or the label or radio people or the manager, and we would get feedback. So I got to sit there and watch them get reamed. Wow, that's an incredible way to learn. So you basically, you not only got the benefit of getting mentored by a great producer. You got basically mentored by lots of great producers and mixers. I, I actually put the success of my career down to be able to be in the room with those guys for years on end. Yeah. I mean, I'd always pick the best producers to do my projects so I could learn something. That's, that's, uh, that's incredible. What, so 17 years at label, I actually didn't know that I didn't know that. It's interesting in dealing with labels. There are some of those A and R guys or project managers who are very much non musicians or producers. But then there are those who, I feel like, in an alternate universe, they would have been, they would have been a producer because they care so much about the production side of it. It's like, dude, why didn't you just do that? Like, why are you doing A and R when you should be producing records and you're the it sounds to me like you're the one who actually, you know, follow, followed it, followed that curiosity. You also have to remember, again, going back to 1985, 86, when I started, every major label had three, four staff producers. That's what they did. I mean, I was one of many people. I, I was a staff producer my whole career. Like every, for 16 years, I would sign on as... You know, I was became senior VP of A&R for RCA Records, but it, it still said staff producer. So right up until probably, I'm going to say, the year 2000, every label had, I mean, Warner Brothers had 25 staff producers between the years of 85 to 2000. Wow. If you go back to records like Van Halen and, you know, go see who produced the records. It was a staff guy. It wasn't some guy off the street. The guy was trained to be a producer. He worked at the studio, the Warner Brothers studio. And I can tell you so many examples. Arif Mardan, who's my idol, my mentor, 
He did Saturday Night Fever. He did Aretha Franklin. Respect. He did Shaka Khan. He did Prince. He's a guy that was a staff producer for Atlantic Records for 40 years. So there was no A&R people the same way we think about it today. In fact, A&R people would go to the staff producers at the company to get their opinion on whether a record was made well or not. Well, that's a whole different world. Like right now I hear about a label that will work with like one guy a lot, but not as a staff producer. It'll just be like their go-to guy, but it'll always be like for, you know, for mixes, but it won't be like someone on staff fulfilling that role that you just described. The labels were in the music business. They all had their own recording studio. All of them did. So, you know, if and they're high-tech, state-of-the-art. Like Atlantic's, Atlantic Records recording studios in New York was like five amazing rooms. So was the RCA studios. So that's what was different. I mean, you had that. They were in the music business. They had studios. They had producers. And then it all changed when we went to computer. You didn't need those guys anymore. People started working out of their house. So who cares? You know, it's like there was no overseeing anything. You just go make a record. Most records people make today, no one's showing up to the studio every every week. You know, they come at the very last day, take the band out for dinner, buy them dinner, and then listen to the record and go home. Yeah, that's that's my experience of labels, actually. That's uh, is they show up on the final day, take everyone out for dinner and go home. Yeah. When I worked at RCA Records, pretty well every one of us as A&R people were in the studio every day with our artists. That's what we did. That's part of the job. We didn't sit around in our office making phone calls. We were making records. So how many records at a time would you be working on? At any given time. Yeah, at any given time. Three to ten. Interesting. And so basically those three to ten would be in different phases, like one would be in mix, one would be pre-pro, and you'd kind of bounce around between those? Yeah, and then I had people reporting to me that had that were A&R people that had their own records, too. Mm-hmm. You know, and we would all talk to each other about how what we're doing and how we're making the record. And, yeah, it was definitely... I mean, Michael Beinhorn, who you just had, had on, I must have seen him a hundred times in my office. He did all sorts of projects for RCA, and, you know, we would always hear great stories about Michael. You know, he did... I heard great stories that he actually built a tent at the, uh, I'm trying to think of the studio, I think it was the Hit Factory, he built a tent because he didn't like the way the speakers sounded. So he had somebody go out and buy a tent, a real tent, and put it around him in the studio so he could listen to it properly. <laughs> you know, there was all sorts of people that would come and go, and you would hear great stories and learn things. Man, with that many people working on these projects at all times and that many projects going on at the same time, I imagine that that must have been a super inspiring environment. Yeah, I mean, you. I couldn't wait to go to a studio in LA or Nashville or Florida or London, wherever we were going to go. You experienced all sorts of different rooms with different engineers and certainly different A&R people, different managers. Yeah, you got to know a lot of people in your career. So when it started to switch over to computers, is that when you started to become more of, I guess, more of how we know you now, because we know you as David Bendeth, this great producer, mixer, who's worked with great bands. I don't, like, this whole label thing is, uh, I think I had heard that about that, but 
that's you know that's not how I know you or how my peers know you. Like so, this transition into how we know and think of you now. How how did you how did that work for you? Like, did the work just get less and less of labels, or how did that happen? I worked at RCA Records for, as I said, those 16 years. I got transferred to New York in 95. I did this record for RCA, this Elvis Presley record, which became his biggest record. I mixed it with Ray Bardani and produced it, put it together. And then it sold a lot of records. And then we got laid off because they owed me a, a ton of money and they couldn't pay me because it was so much money because I, I had a point on my A&R deal. And then Clive Davis was taking over the label. So basically, I was told, you know, to, to go go to the beach for five, four years or something because I had a, a, a contract where I wasn't supposed to work. And of course, the first thing I did was I, I, I went into a studio and started to find bands as if I was still working for the label, except I was going to sign them to my own production company. And I walked into the studio one day and there was a, a young assistant engineer in there called Dan Corniff. And I liked Dan, although he screwed up my first session really bad. He recorded it. <laughs> he recorded everything at a wrong rate. I think he was at 48. We were at 44. Something funny happened. And I fired him pretty well the second day. But then I called him back. But basically what we did was we were doing anything and everything. So that was kind of the beginning of me being an independent producer, even though I'd done it the whole time. I'd never done it exclusively. And certainly mixing I wanted to do, but it it wasn't something I wanted to do every day like the Andy Wallaces of the world. So uh, I just didn't want to do it every day because I thought it was going to, I felt it was I was going to be bored out of my mind. And I, I hated the idea of me working all day and then sending something to someone and having them tear it to shreds. So we started to just start make records. Uh, and we were lucky enough to get into a studio where there was nobody in it. It was dead. And it was a rap hip-hop studio in Times Square. And then we started making, you know, records, like real records. Like we did the first Breaking Benjamin record there. Um, and then that took off like a bat out of hell. I think we ended up doing, you know, two million records within a year. And the next thing you know, your phone's ringing. And then it was like we were just lining them up one after another. Red Jumpsuit, Paramore, Breaking Benjamin again, Hawthorne Heights. You know, it just kept going and going and going. One year we had four platinum records, in a, like in a row. So it was also a time where people were buying CDs. And it was a healthy environment. There was no streaming. You know, cell phones were kind of being used, but not that much. You know, we had Motorola, whatever, not Motorola, but those flip phones. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was a different tech, technical time. And, you know, in the studio one day, Dan Corniff was the one that said to me, you know, we should get off of this tape business, this half-inch and two-inch shit that you're so hung up on, because I love tape. You know, I knew tape, how it sounded. And then he played me one of my mixes off of the Didge, and he blindfolded me, and they turned me around in a chair, and they said, okay, tell us which one is half-inch and which one is Didge. And I picked the wrong one seven out of 10 times. So that was the end of my tape life, you know, cause it was so much easier to not work on tape. Around what year do you think that was when you decided to drop tape? 
2003. Okay. You know, we, we just decided not to do it. So when you were transitioning, I mean, I guess when you got laid off and decided to go independent, what... Were you scared at all, or was it, or did you feel very confident, like "fuck it, I can just do this. I'm, I'm just going to make it happen"? There's a few people in my life that I've always depended on to get a straight answer, and about two days after I got let go, I was pretty devastated, but I knew I was still going to be in music no matter what. And I phoned this guy David Foster, the famous producer David Foster, because he was at Warner Brothers working in it as an A and R guy, running his own label. And I, he's known me. I've known him since he was, you know, whatever, a young teenager. He played keyboards in Ronnie Hawkins' band, and then he went on to produce Celine Dion and the rest of the world, Earth, Wind & Fire, and everybody. So he was always like a guy I looked up to, and I said to him, what should I do? And I'll never forget this. He started laughing on the other end of the phone. And he says, you're kidding, right? And I go, no. <laughs> what should you do? You should be making records all day. And I went, oh, like what? He says, I don't know. You play guitar, right? I go, yeah. You're a songwriter. Yeah. You're a producer. Yeah. He says, what are you talking about? Just go do that now. And that's exactly what I did. So I have to credit David with telling me within a couple of days, like, don't lose your, don't lose your career path over this. It certainly wasn't worth it. So basically, just do the same thing you were doing before, but for yourself rather than for a label. Exactly. And and he said, whatever you do, don't work for RCA. <laughs> Which I didn't. So, you know, it's it's interesting how for him it was probably so obvious, that answer, that just, dude, just go, just go do what you do. Like, don't even worry about it. Just go do what you do. But... um I'm sure that for you, you probably felt a little bit lost and like, you know, what the fuck is going to happen? Well, you know, I'll tell you, it was like a death. You know, you go through those different emotional periods of the anger and the remorse and the denial. Now, it happens to anybody that goes through that kind of thing in their life, which is life changing. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I still had a mortgage on my house. I had a young daughter. I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. So it, you became desperate. But then something that always has got to me through my whole career, took over, which was revenge. And I know that sounds pretty crazy, but it, it was revenge. Nah, honestly, I've been there before, so I understand. I wanted to bury the label single-handedly. I get it. Like, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I totally relate to that because there's been, I don't know, man, I, people have told me that it's not a, that I shouldn't be motivated by it, but at certain times with certain situations um, where I felt like I got fucked, um, that revenge is kind of what incur. You know, that's what drove me to do something better. Like to, you know, even if it's not, even if it's just for me, you know, for me to prove to myself that I could do something better than the situation I was in before. That revenge has driven me and has caused some pretty great things. So I don't, I don't think it's crazy. As you know, I think a lot of people are motivated by that and just don't want to admit it. We might not want to call it revenge, you know, but people are motivated by a lot of different things. And I think if enough people tell you 
that you can't do something and you shouldn't do it and you disagree with them and then you get knocked down. I mean, people say to me all the time, what do you can, what do you attribute some of your success to? And I would tell you this, and I was taught this very early. It's the way you recover from failure that gives you true success because if people keep knocking you down and telling you you're not good, like certainly in my life mixing, I was told hundreds of times my mixes sucked, like they were the worst thing we'd ever heard. The drums sound garbage, the vocals are buried, there's too much reverb, the guitars are too loud, whatever it was, it would happen over and over. And then back then, you didn't have the opportunity to fix it because you have to pay for a whole new studio day you know, with all the rentals and everything. So you couldn't fix it. Not like today where you pull it up in 13 seconds and there is the track. So you never got the chance to make good. And that was really frustrating. So it's just something that would build up and stick with you over time. It seems to me like you would have to, you would have to make good on it in a much grander way than if you could just fix each individual instance. I never realized how how to fix my mistakes. It took me a long time. Okay, so you were motivated by this revenge against the label for letting you go. Um, obviously, they made a mistake. By you know, proof is proof is in the pudding. I guess that if that many platinum records happened that quickly, did you feel validated or vindicated? Did you get that revenge? You know, it was really interesting. Like, it wasn't like I didn't have success before I got from 2001. I had signed and produced a lot of records. Um, I, I signed the Cowboy Junkies and the Crash Test Dummies in Canada. And I'd made records that had sold hundreds of thousands of records in Canada and had started to do American projects. I mean, I signed Vertical Horizon at RCA. I had already had big success. But this time, it wasn't the label that was getting just the label that was getting something out of it. Because remember, I never got paid as a producer. I got paid as an A&R person, so it was different. Mm -hmm. Once I started working for myself, it changed. Yeah. yeah when getting paid by a label, uh, just was that like a salary or did you get royalties? Like, Do you mind explaining a little bit about how that worked? Yeah, we would get a salary and then we would get one point in all the projects that we signed. Got it. Okay, so so there was some merit-based pay there where if the record did great, you'd get some reward for it for sure. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I certainly, when I left the company, I definitely felt pretty insecure because I'd had that great security for so long. But there was something really exciting about it at the same time. So how long did it take, though? So you said that once it got going, it really got going. But how long did it take between when you were let go and when you had that first platinum record with Dan? Well, that's funny. That's a good question. Um, listen, you know, I had I had some I had some real help. I mean, remember, I was an A and R guy for a long time, so I would target certain bands no different than if I was going to sign them. Mm -hmm. If that makes any sense. In other words, I would do my homework. Yeah, totally. I would find out which bands are next and if they're going to break and what the label commitment is. I could tell within 20 minutes whether the label was committed to working on the project. Absolutely. So I had a, a huge 
advantage. And I, it took me six months to get a platinum record. That's incredible. That's actually really incredible. Man, you know, that's one thing that I try to tell producers who are learn, you know, who want to build their careers. That's something that I've always told them to do that I don't think many people do is that you should do your, you know, it's like intelligence work. You need to do your, you need to get the intelligence on these bands. And because it's a lot more than just the songs, you need to find out, you know, what kind of team they have backing them, how committed the team is, like, do the are there family problems in the band? Like, is this band going to break up within a month of the album being done? Like, all these different all these different factors, you need to know them all uh, and go for bands that have all the right, you know, it's not just the good songs. It's They have to have that committed team. They have to have a stable, you know, stable membership, like all those things. And, and you know, sometimes it's a little bit different than that in the sense that you might come across a band that has nothing going for it as far as their mm -hmm. business side. They might not have... A great manager they might not have a label they might not have a lawyer they might not have an accountant or an agent but what do they have they have great songs so that's when you jump in and you go guess what i'm working for free i'm going to go for back end and so i've gambled on that horse many many times in my career because i really believe something was going to work and all you need to be is right a few times with that. And people look at you a little bit differently. So it's not just a matter of being there with your hand out waiting for a check. Sometimes you've got to take on things that you believe in and not expect something right away or anything right away. That's called risk. And if you gamble on yourself, that's a whole different animal because you can win if you know what you're doing. So, I mean... I think, though, that your understanding of the whole game would allow you to make good decisions even when taking those risks. So, like, even if that band didn't have management or a label, um, you know, you could still assess whether or not you thought the music was strong enough to overcome those things. Or, you know, like, you, it's, you still understood the whole picture um, and how that band fit in. You know, I was trained in working for labels and being in those meetings, those marketing meetings, those promotion meetings, those sales meetings. They would be talking about all of the things we just talked about, managers and, and, and publicists. And, you know, you'd see if the band had personality and they had drive, it would be worth it, you know, to take chances. And I think that's, that's what a lot of people doing, certainly today in the rap business, people are, or even in the country business. I mean, one of the biggest businesses in country right now is songwriters in Nashville writing songs and then selling them to an artist and the label. You know, people are getting $25,000 for a track. You know, they're just selling the track as is. And it's a demo. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole different business. So it does, does show, you know, you can't sit around and wait for the phone to ring, no. I think that that's always going to be true. It's always been true and always going to be true. I think that with the phone ringing, uh, there will be, you know, throughout a successful career, 
Uh, you will have time periods where the phone rings more than others, but I feel like anyone who gets comfortable with that is setting themselves up for disaster eventually. Well, you know, look, you get hot and you get cold. That's what happens. You know, one minute, you're Atlantic Records' favorite mixer and their favorite producer, and then the next minute, they don't like your work anymore. You know, then you go to Sony or then you go to Rise Records or wherever it is going to be, you go in and out of different phases of doing lots of work for a label. And then you go back to Sony five years later and there's a whole bunch of different people there. So you walk in and you say hi. And if you've got a hit, you play it for them. You know, that's how it's been working. But with rock music lately, it's been really, really rough because that music is pretty well non-existent the way it was five years ago. Um, you know, especially in, in the younger, you know, 18 to 25 year old band bracket, there's not a lot of opportunity the way it was. It really, I think you're absolutely right that rap is kind of the rebellion music of now. And what's interesting too is you see a lot of these uh, these newer rappers like come from like a rock and metal background too. Like it does seem to me like those those kids that would have been making heavy music five, ten years ago are now making rap. Yeah, I mean, most of the music today has nothing to do with record labels. It's music that's homegrown. Absolutely. They put it up on SoundCloud or wherever they're going to do, and people love it, and it's it's kind of like, it's true democracy of music. Nothing shoved down your throat anymore. And since you had the, you know, experience of seeing it both ways, uh, do, you, do you prefer one, or, and do you think that it's, worthwhile for people to sit around comparing them comparing okay so i see a lot of people who did not experience the old industry comparing now to the old music industry and i get i understand i understand why people do that but i think that me personally i think that sometimes they think they're they naively think that things are going to revert back to how they were and I don't think they're ever going to revert back to how they were because the world doesn't work that way. That's insane. That's like saying we're all going to go back, you know, to... To the typewriter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no. I mean, technology is here. It's not going to go anywhere. It's going to get better. It's going to be stronger. And music is going to reflect that. Um, but you're still going to... I mean, today's producer is not really a producer. Today's producer is a songwriter. Mm -hmm. If you don't write, you're not going to get any work. I really believe that. It's going to be practically impossible. Or if you're a producer that doesn't write and doesn't have 10 guys to call to write your songs for for you, you're also not going to be a producer either. It's taken on that shape. I, I think you're absolutely right. And I've, I've seen quite a few guys who, you know, a few years ago they were uh, getting calls to come in and save songs on records. Uh you know, their, their whole gig was writing. A lot of these guys have transitioned into becoming pretty successful producers now. I actually think you're absolutely right. That's the way it used to be as well. I mean, the question is, you know, can you be a producer and not know the notes in a C chord? And the answer is, of course not, you can't. And that's the way it used to be, which is a good thing, I think. You know, I mean, most bands can't name you the names of the chords they play. But if the producer can't either, you got a problem. Yeah, you. the producer should be the expert, 
as far as I'm concerned. Um, and it's interesting that you bring up the writing. I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but there used to be a time period where an engineer or producer didn't even have to be a musician. But uh, now, then it became where producers and engineers were almost always musicians. But it seems to me like it's evolving again into where not only do engineers and producers have to be musicians, but they have to be writers. Yeah, the, the landscape has changed. And, and I mean, when you talk about hip hop, you're talking about, as you everybody knows now, it's no secret. It's, you know, eight to 15 writers on one song. Wow. So do you feel like the fact that you, you know, back to what we were first talking about, you're, you're pulled by the writing, by the creative side of it more than the technical side. Do you think that that's part of what's kept you, kept you going and kept you relevant? The fact that your passion is kind of what the industry evolved into? Look, I, I mean, for me, there's been so many different eras I can't remember them all anymore. But I really try and not think about it too much. Because if I do, it hurts. <laughs> In the sense that music is ever-evolving and you have to keep up with whatever the technology is, that's important. But at the same time, if you don't keep up with the emotional inner side of creativity, it doesn't matter what kind of technology you've got you're not going to do anything that means anything or inspire anybody. And certainly when I do a project, that's the most important thing for me. Whether it sounds great or not is important, but nowhere near as important as, is it good? Is it worthy? Is it creative? Is it special? Is the performance is great? That's so much more important. When you go for that for when and asking yourself those questions, um, is it one of those things where you know the answer when you hear it. Well, like, again, it's being in touch with your artist that you're working with. That's that's the thing. I mean, it just helps if you get to know them. You get to know about their life. You ask a lot of questions. You don't talk about yourself that much unless they ask. And you find out where the song comes from, where it lives, where it's been, what's supposed to happen. That's That's really important. And to do that, it's, you know, as a producer, you've got to be very unselfish. Um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of times today, producers are making records for themselves. You see that more and more. But when you're working with other people, I mean, if you're working with Britney Spears or you're working with, you know, they come into the studio, Katy Perry or whoever it is, and they're singing for a week and then they go home or back on tour again, wherever it is. It's different. But when you're working in a room in close quarters, with a band for a month or six weeks or two months, it's a totally different experience. So it helps to get to know them and what what's important. You were telling me when we were chatting once about how your goal, and I'm paraphrasing because this was like six months ago, but uh, you told me that your goal is to strip away the bullshit and get to like the deepest place you can get artistically with them, with your artists, and to get them to, you know, to express their true self as much as possible. And sound, how do you know you're getting there? And um, do you find that 
do you find that you need to use different techniques with different types of people to get that out of them? Yes, absolutely. I mean, some artists don't care about what, they don't want to tell you anything. So you kind of have to guess. And others are very open and you have to break them down slowly. Um, I, when I say break them down, it's really not about breaking them down. It's about trying to find the song within them and their performance yeah. with it. Because most people are not trained how to sing or write songs that I deal with. They're not people that know music the way it was in the sense that they've studied it. Just because you listen to a Fleetwood Mac record with your mother doesn't mean you know about music now. It just means that you listen to Fleetwood Mac when you were 10. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we are all a culmination of our favorite music. That's what we are. We're a product of what moves us. And so I always ask people, instead of, if I can't get through to an artist, I'll say to them, good. So you don't want to tell me anything. Well, that's okay. So now play me a song that makes you cry. And now play me a song that makes you happy. And now may play me a song that you hate. And now play me a song that you want to listen to on the way to your vacation. And by listening to those five songs, I don't really need to talk to them much anymore. It's all there. Interesting. That's that's actually great. I've never never heard someone give that answer before about how they get it out of an artist, but I guess if you know someone's musical tastes, you know, you know emotionally where they're at. Well, to coin a cheesy phrase, you know, music being the soundtrack to our lives. We yeah. we don't realize how much it, it impermeates our thoughts and our feelings. In fact, you know, every time we talk about a breakup in a love affair or the, or meeting a new love affair or being depressed at the loss of a friend or a parent, there's a song that goes with that. And without that song, a lot of us could never, ever have gotten through it. Not really. And so it becomes an aid. It becomes a powerful, powerful tool that changes the way we think about doing it. So if I'm in the studio and I'm trying to make a record like that, I have to look for that. I have to find that feeling. I have to find that that inner strength to make that song be that powerful. So I guess that sometimes, probably very often, um, finding that that expression isn't something that you know someone is going to be able to tell you verbally. Um, so finding out what turns them on musically is probably a much, actually a much better indicator than what they would tell you verbally anyways. As crazy as this might sound, and I'm going to be completely honest with you right now, before I mix anyone's record, I probably speak to them for three or four hours. Like in one shot or over time? Over a period of a week, I will speak to them And this is to get to know to get to know them. I'm assuming. 
You're making a custom suit. Fair enough. And do you do this with every member of the band or? The creators of the music and the producer. You know, I mean, I've mixed three or four records for Andrew Wade. You know, mm -hmm. Day to Remember or um, Ghost Inside. I mean, one uh, hour last night. I mean, Andrew Wade and I talked for hours on each of those projects before I did anything. Nothing. I wouldn't touch anything without having that conversation with him. That's another mistake today that's made over and over again, where people say, hey, I do my thing. You better like it. Well, that's not that's not necessarily true. You know, one thing that I think the Internet ruins is what you get from talking to people, whether in person or on the phone or whatever. But I feel like text, you know, the whole text medium gets in the way of this. But nothing nothing beats actually getting to know somebody through their words or, you know, in person. But you can't always do in person. But uh, nothing... Nothing text-wise will even come close to the kind of connection you can get to somebody through talking to them. But, you know, I'll give you an example. Like, Bring Me the Horizon. Uh, we mixed the Sempaternal album. Well, at that time, England is five hours ahead, right? That's not too bad. I mean, you finish a mix at 10 at night, it's 3 in the morning, they can listen. But in this instance, Ollie Sykes was in Bali. Ouch. So now... Every morning at 9.30, and, and Ollie was, you know, he was having a good vacation. I don't think he was partying. But we would Skype at 9.30 in the morning for half an hour or an hour to talk about that day's work. And that's, what, 10,000 miles away in a different world while he's on vacation. So that's what technology has brought us. And, you know, through those kinds of things, we're able to make better records, but take advantage of it. Yeah, but that's still talking. That's that to me is an evolution of the telephone. So you're still talking, you're not texting, you're actually engaging. That that I think that that's one of the best things actually about the modern day is that we can do that with people 10,000 miles away. And I you know, not just in music, I think that lots of uh relationships are saved because of it too. Uh because of the fact that you know, people can travel and keep in touch with their loved ones, but actually see them and talk to them, you know, it, it is the next best thing to being in person. So, you know, if you do use the tools of today for their true potential, you, I think that you can make connections a lot deeper, but you have to actually use them. I guess that's the, that's the key. I guess when you have these conversations with, the people you're working with is, is this something that I guess, is this something that developed over time? Like this became something that you do or have you always done that? Where do you think that came from? Cause not everyone does that. It, it came from the fact that I would get records back that I hated and nobody ever called me to ask me what I thought. And I was a producer or I was a songwriter or in some cases a musician. So it came from being 19 and probably making my first album and having my producer leave halfway through because he was getting a divorce and having me stuck there and hating every moment of what happened afterwards because I didn't know what I was doing. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. 
URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you remember, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics. And Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about, and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy enhanced to find out more. So, and you don't ever want to be that guy for the people you work with, or you don't want things to be left unsaid? You know, look, there's a lot of scuttlebutt that happens. That's, you know, talk in the background, background talk behind everybody today, you know, Uh and everybody has this reputation. I mean, I, I know mine, I hear it all the time. You know, it's really, it's really funny. Because, you know, people say, well, you know, he's not going to listen to what you have to say or he's not going to or it's going to be it's going to be intense or he's going to demand this from you or this. And then they get to work with me. They're like, well, wait a minute. This is nothing like I thought. I think what I do that's maybe a bit different is I spend a lot of time with the artist and get to know them and their song. And through that, that becomes quite painful sometimes. It's not that much fun, but I find it a necessary evil. So. You know, to answer your question, I could sit in my high castle and do whatever I do all day and say, here it is, you know, here's your dinner, eat it. Or I could say, what do you want for dinner? Because I could make that just as easy. That that makes perfect sense. And, you know, when it's, I actually think that I want to key in on something you just said, that it's not always fun to go through, you know, to talk about these things or to explore them because, you know, we're talking about some painful, some potentially painful things. And you're, you know, if you're trying to understand the feelings of of somebody before you're about to go make a record that expresses those feelings and they're coming from a painful place, of course, it's not going to be very much fun to talk about it. But kind of like in the same way that therapy is not supposed to be that much fun, but important. You know, bands, basically, they come off the road and they're told to go write a record. You know, they've been out on the road for a year and a half. Good. Now you got three months to write your album and you got another 
two months to record it. And when they come off the road, they're a train wreck. They're tired. They're lonely. They could be drunk, high, emotionally distressed. And then they run back into studio for two or three months. And I'm the one that gets them. You know, I'm the one that has to sit with them. Their parents wouldn't even sit with them for 12 hours a day, six days a week for three months. They couldn't. So there's something that has to happen. And it's a recuperation period. And it's a a period of time where you find yourself again. And through your music, you set your path for the next year. So it is not that simple. And to be honest with you, most people cave under the pressure of touring and making a record. They don't do very well at all. You know, most of the bands that are successful do not make a record after they tour. Most of them. Because they haven't written anything good in the bus. They just think they have. That's not a good environment for writing (laughs) at all. It's a terrible environment for writing. You know, I think also not just that, I guess, you're helping them recuperate psychologically. I think that also one thing that happens when you're in the music industry is, uh, especially if you're successful, is you get yesed a lot and you don't get a lot of honesty from the people around you. Um, You know, because especially successful bands having their asses kissed all day, every day, and are living this kind of, alternate reality lifestyle and that lifestyle and getting your ass kissed all day is not exactly conducive to being in touch with deeper, darker feelings. It, It doesn't necessarily go together. So I think that not only are you helping them recuperate from this insanity, but you're also you're providing something that doesn't, it's not really common in the music industry. Um, but that's really, really important actually for creating art, which is reconnecting psychologically. If there's one thing I've learned is the best records are usually the ones that are the most tumultuous. Yeah. I mean, that's probably the same reason that, uh, that you hear about great artists being nuts or there's always a story about, how a great movie was made or a great record or a great artist cutting off their own ear. I mean, art, art doesn't come from a fun place generally, I think. No, I mean, I've lost a few artists that I've worked very closely with too, to all the, all the, the bullshit that goes on outside of it. And when you hear it, one part of you is, is upset and frustrated and sad, but another part of you is not that shocked. I mean, yeah, I totally... I totally agree. It isn't shocking. This is a very, it's a very fucked up lifestyle. And I think when I was a lot younger, it was glorified a lot. I've thought about this a lot recently. Like when I was a teenager and I'd see magazines and watch MTV and stuff, like it was very glorified. And uh, like the kinds of addictions that you would, that become normal for artists. And it was just made to seem really, really cool as I've gone on. And lots of people I know have died from it. And like, you see like the death count rising from just people, you know, in bands, it almost seems like, you know, 
almost seems like we're police officers or something with the amount of people we know that uh, are drop like flies. It's it's insane. The reality of it is very very different than the way it's uh, portrayed. It's not cool at all. And being in the business of tapping into that type of stuff has, you know, it's got its negative consequences for sure. It's it's not necessarily fun stuff. You know, the, the 70s and the 80s, which, which we talked about before, was an era of promiscuity. In fact, I would say half of the songs that were written were written about being promiscuous. And it was the norm. All of that was the norm. You were allowed to talk about anything. It didn't matter. And you were allowed to do anything after the show. You know, now a comedian can't get up anymore in front of a college audience. And they don't want to. Because it's changed. Because rock and roll was based on promiscuity and and and, and sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Now that's gone away. So is rock and roll. Yeah, it's almost like you can't have one without the other. You know what's... You know, what's so interesting about that is uh, I'm sure that you've noticed that uh, lots of times artists who were great, who also had like horrible coke addictions or something, you know, would get sober and then their music would start to suck. And, the you know, they would go in magazines or interviews and talk about how their music's better than ever. But you would hear it and it would just sound castrated and... It's it really bummed me out because I really do I this happened so many times. I really did like their art better when they were really fucked up people. And you know, I don't wish them any harm. Like I don't want them to die from an overdose or anything like that. So it's uh it like I I haven't yet reconciled how I feel about the whole thing because I feel like the lifestyle that's needed to really get there is also deadly. And so it, it you know, kind of sucks. A lot of people do a lot of things for different reasons. We don't really know the reasons why a lot of them are spur of the moment reasons, but uh, yeah, I mean, artists definitely go through phases and those phases make them who they are. That's why there's not a lo lot of longevity in our business. You know, how many artists can we think about that we loved that were, you know, 40, 50 years ago that are still writing great songs today. You know, be, people were, you know, talking about Prince when he died, you know, but, and I love Prince. I mean, he's one of my favorite artists of all time, but I, I had never heard a good song from Prince in the last 20 years that I was excited about. But when you look at his body of work, at that period in his life, it was sensational. There's only a few people that have, withstood 40 years in this record business and still are successful. It's not a business for longevity. Not really. Not as an artist, at least. I meant as an artist, yes. Yeah. It's interesting, though, how uh, I look at parallels to other creative fields, and you have actors, for instance. You know, that's an artist, uh, but you have actors who manage to be incredible for 40 years, 50 years. Um, or directors who, you know, just keep on doing great stuff. I wonder what's different there than in music to where it seems like in music you have your time period where you're great. You know, you have that peak where everything you touch is gold. And that peak is different for everybody. Like 
Sometimes it lasts 10 years. Sometimes it lasts six months. But it almost, like you said, it almost never lasts 40 or 50 years. So what's different about music? Music's different because it's not, acting is acting. Music is not acting. Music comes from a different place. You know, it's not a matter of reading a script that's been written for you. You're writing your own script, and that's the difference. Um, and so you live and die by that sword. And, the, and you're only as good as your last song. You know, that's, that's why things come and go. A great example in the acting world right now is Johnny Depp, you know, who everybody's thought, everybody loves all of Johnny's, John's movies. They're phenomenal. And he's phenomenal, but right now he just got booted off the Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah. So he's going through a terrible time in his career. But the truth is, is Johnny Depp going to be a major threat in five or ten years? And if you're a gambling person, you'd say, yeah, because that's the kind of actor he is. He's in, he's insanely good. And if he cleans up, you know, like what's the other guy that cleaned up really, really well and now? Robert Downey Jr. There you go. There's a great example of a rehabilitated actor. Johnny Depp could very easily be Robert Downey. Yep, absolutely. This is the thing. It's like you look at your work over over your lifetime. You don't look at it over three or four years. And if you're serious about what you're doing, I mean, I've been very lucky to say I've been doing what I wanted since I was 17. You know, that's a long time to be making records. Like, that's all I've ever done. I've never known how to do anything else. I can barely... Screw in a light bulb. But you do that because it's what you love and you're passionate about it. And and hopefully you, you're good at it eventually. But it, it's a long ladder. And you have to be prepared to fall down the ladder a few times and, and still get back on it again. And it's not easy. Sometimes I can honestly tell you that I, I felt like not getting back on the ladder. Some days, I mean, I, I try to write every day. Some days I wake up and I feel... I don't want to write anything today, but I know I force myself to do it because I have to do it because it keeps me alive or awake or whatever you want to call it. And I think, you know, that's another thing about our business. There's a lot of uptime and there's a lot of downtime and you've got to, you've got to find yourself within the downtime too to, to keep yourself moving. So how have you found yourself during the downtime? I write every day. So do you, is it one of those things where, I guess, well, I mean, you just said you write every day, but it, so no matter what, you're creating something. Yes, try to. And it doesn't work out that way. You know, if I'm not in the studio making a record or mixing a record, you know, it's like being 85 years old and you start to lose your memory. Well, you better start playing Scrabble, <laughs> you know. Even though you don't want to. So, yeah, you you know, well, I don't, I don't mean it that way. I mean, look, you can be 25 years old and still struggling and trying to get projects, but it doesn't mean you shouldn't work every day like as if you were working. And I've had periods in my career where I've worked every day for four years. Like, not every day, but, you know, six days a week. Like, at least 340 days a year for four years in, in a row. Like most people would want to just retire at the end of that. You've done, like I remember, was it four or five years ago? I think we did 10 records in a row. Wow. 10. We did like, we started with Bring Me the Horizon, Asking Alexandria, Mice and Men, uh, Beartooth, I Prevail. I mean, it just kept going and going and going and going. 
with no end in sight. But after a while, you do start to lose your mind because you're really not learning anything because you're doing, you know, a lot of the same thing. And I'm sure I just forgot sleeping with sirens, yeah. young guy. We just kept going. So Tom Cruise, the actor, 57 years old. He could slow down if he wanted to. You know, he's as rich as anyone could ever dream of being, as successful as anyone could ever dream of being in a hundred lifetimes. And I and someone who his assistant was just interviewed, and he still gets up at four AM every day now nowadays and still goes for it like he's uh twenty three um and has not become successful yet. And apparently he's been like that his entire career, regardless of up times or down times. And he's definitely had a few down times his career. But I always I like to find out what, you know, the super achievers do. Because like you said earlier, it's not about it's not about the success. It's about what you do to recover from the failure. And so and then you come to find out, of course somebody who's that successful still gets up at four AM and goes that hard even if he doesn't have to, he, of course. So when you tell me that you did 10 records in a row just very recently, it's like, of course you did. That makes perfect sense. That's uh, that's exactly what I would have expected. Here, here's the funny thing, too. Like, a lot of people are driven by money, and that becomes really important. Not necessarily about the art form, but it's really funny because when you're working really that hard and I've kind of worked my life like that, like there's no time to spend any money. <laughs> you're not going to enjoy your money. <laughs> so, you know what? You get to drive to work in a nice car and it pretty well ends there. It's not like you're going out buying clothes and lying on the beach and traveling the world and you can play golf and go fishing or whatever it is you do. You know, you, you do that. You work for your family. You work for other people around you to make them happy. It's a whole different dynamic. So that's the other thing. You know, you, to me, and I heard this early in my career, was surviving is making it in the music business. Just being able to survive is, is being successful. I think that there's a lot of truth to that, actually. It's a badge of honor if you can survive in this industry, let alone prosper, but... To survive is a... Anyone who survives in it, I have some respect for. The music business has definitely attracted a certain kind of people. That, that's for sure. And some of them are fantastic and are, are in it for all the right reasons. And others are in it for all the wrong reasons. And you kind of figure that out really quickly in your career. You know, you can tell by sitting down and having it like you and I have been talking now for two hours about music and the music and making of music. But but you can tell someone that isn't because after five or ten minutes, they'll start talking about the New York Yankees and how well they played last night. You know, and that's <laughs> when you know that that person just happens to be in the room and they start talking about something that has nothing to do with music. And I call those people the best ten minutes in rock and roll. I mean, look, I like making money just like anybody else does, too. And it's important. Um but like like you said, it's not 
about the money. We don't get to enjoy it anyways. And even though I'm not producing now, I'm running the URM, it's still, you know, it's still the music world and it still consumes 16 hours a day. And it's the same thing. It's it's still the same the same type of lifestyle. I'm still dealing with music all day, every day. Um, and it, you know, the money is for other people. Um, it's for me being able to set up my kids when I have them. And maybe I can go to the airport in a nice car, but I don't get to, you know, it's not about the money. Um, it's definitely not. And I feel like if it was about the money, there'd be other things to do that I could do with my life that would make a lot more and a lot with a lot less effort. Producers and engineers that are really true to themselves, they take all that money that they make and buy gear with it. Yes, they do. <laughs> you know, that that's what they buy. And you say, what, did you go on a vacation? No, but I bought, you know, a new compressor and a new plug-in and a new computer. So yeah, I mean, reinvesting in yourself in the music business is a great business for, for people selling us stuff, that's for sure. Because there's always something new to buy. Yeah, I and I can tell you from running a business that, um, myself and my partners, we could pay ourselves a lot more if we wanted to, but we reinvest in the business always because, I mean, dude, you're not, if you're in this and you've survived, uh, chances are that there's something deeper that's driving you. Um, because like I said, like there are other ways to make money in life that are far less work and far less painful. So if you're if you're in this and you survive, there's something deeper driving you, and um, any chance that I have to enhance it, um, you know that uh, get closer to the goal, the deeper the deeper goal I'm going to. And so when the money comes in, I reinvest it right away because it's gonna. I think about where that money could go, is, and I think that reinvesting it in the future is the best possible place it could go rather than a vacation or lining my pocket a little bit more, you know? So with that said, and we have been talking for a while and I want to respect your time. We have a few questions from our audience that I'd like to ask you if you're willing to, to answer. I'm not going to ask all of them, but I'd feel bad if we didn't go through a few of them. Here's one from uh, Russell Mueller, which is, Mr. Bendeth, you're known for getting incredible drum sounds, but good tones only shine on a great performance. Sometimes the recording process can interrupt a drummer's creative vibe with technical details, or having mics on their kit may cramp their playing style. Can you talk about your approach to balancing the quest for great source tone against coaching a great performance out of maybe a less experienced drummer? So the question is, how do you get a great performance out of a drummer that's not that good? Is that the question? How do you balance keeping the the drummer's psychology right with decisions that you need to make for the engineering side of things that might uh, interfere with their vibe? You know, I probably have a different approach than most people. Like, I, I uh, first of all, most of the drummers we work with I would say 80% of them have no studio experience. And the ones that have, somebody just takes all their drums and throws them into time and then basically throws them out of the studio. 
So they never actually get to learn how to play anything in the studio. You know, the minute we work with a session musician, we get everything, the album done in two or three days. So I've had a situation maybe 10, 12 times in my life where we've been working with drummers that can't really play that well. And we get through it as best we can. But it is a painful thing for everybody involved. It really is. And especially when we have to program, it just takes three times longer. But a lot of the problems come here from the guitar players that are doing demos and they start being the drummer in the band. They write parts that are phenomenal that nobody could ever play. (laughs) So, you know, most of that is bullshit to me. It's like, why would you try and make your drummer do something? Well, because they know the engineer is just going to recreate it anyway. So when we say the drummer's playing, they're not really playing. It's just that nobody tells them afterwards that they didn't play. So, okay. So now... To answer your question a little bit simpler, what would I do if I went the other route? Well, of course, you want to have the best drums you can get. You want to have the best heads you can get. You want to have somebody that can tune the drums. You want to have somebody that has the right sticks. You want to have the right microphones in the right room with a great way to record through some kind of mic prees. And and you want to have a, a DAW that the engineer understands. But nothing, none of those things can make a drummer play better. So I would just tell the guy to take lessons. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. There was a situation where I had a drummer that wasn't very good. And I ended up playing guitar with him. And I played a completely different song to the one he was playing. And he didn't care anymore about the song we were playing. And he just played drums. And he's relaxed and he stopped thinking about it. So there are ways to do it. Fair enough. So, Tim Wheaton's wondering, after engineering, mixing, and mastering across so many decades and the constant redefinition of what a modern mix entails, how does one continually evolve without losing their signature sound? Well, that's a good question. So, first of all, I don't know anything about mastering, and most I don't think most mixing engineers go anywhere near the master of their record. I'm, I'm talking about from my school. Today, it's really expensive to master records, so people have to do it. It doesn't mean they're any good. You know, as far as a signature sound, you know, from the way I see it at least, that could be the kiss of death too. Because a signature sound, like take Andy Wallace, who I think is one of the best mixers that ever lived. Well, you haven't heard his Whitney Houston mixes, by the way, long before Nirvana, long before Linkin Park, long before Limp Bizkit. Like, Andy Wallace mixed probably a 100 number one pop songs. So what's Andy Wallace's signature sound? It's his hit mixes. You know, and I don't necessarily think that they're signature. I think he basically evolves to the track and you become that. The minute you think that you're going to put your stamp on everything and you're going to brand it, I feel like that's dangerous and you're not going to get calls to do different music, which today would also be a big no-no. That means you can't do hip-hop because you're doing country or you can't do rock because you're doing hip-hop. You know, you can't limit yourself. So your signature sound becomes the artist's sound. That's the way you should do it. Great. All right, and one more question. Uh, This one's from Charlie Sandberg. David, you said in interviews that you sought under oath out to mix uh, 
because you didn't think anyone got them yet. And that album has a crazy mix, and I love it. What was the thing you wanted to bring to that record? And did you have a vision for all that weird, awesome craziness before you heard the record? Or did that come about in the mix process? Well, okay, so we're talking about this record, Lost in the Sound of Separation. Yeah. That that record, yeah. Well, okay, so I had made friends with the drummer. I'd done his record, The Almost. So I really liked Aaron Gillespie. I thought he was super talented, an amazing drummer, and a great singer. And I heard this record, like I did this band, Red Jumpsuit, and right after I started to listen to this record, Define the Great Line, which I thought was amazing, and actually Chris Lord Algy mixed that record. I just thought it was really interesting, but it wasn't violent enough for me. So when I heard they were making a record, I phoned Aaron and I phoned Spencer and I said, look, give me a chance to do this because I think I can do a great job. And it was done by two or three different people. I'm not sure who the producers were, but it was done by different producers and different songs were done. So it kind of came in. Um, it was a bit weird the way it came in. But the songs had keyboards and they had screaming and they had rapping and they had guitar solos. And it was very, very enigmatic. I kind of saw the band as like a Radiohead type band for modern rock. And the great thing about that project, for me at least, was that the band showed up to mix. So they were there for everything. And that was really exciting having them give me input as, as we worked. And I think Dan Corniff was on that project too. And he did an amazing job. Um, you know, sort of taking the drums and really taking them to the next level. And there was a lot of fine balancing going on that record because it was a very challenging record sonically to put together. In fact, I can also say that if we didn't do that record, I would never have gotten to do Bring Me the Horizon because they wanted it to sound like that record, the Sempaternal record. They, they actually said that to me. Okay, well, speaking of Sempaternal, I know I said that that Charlie Sandberg question was the last one, but since we've gotten about 20 questions about Sempiternal, and you just mentioned that they wanted to sound like that, let me just ask you this one question that kind of encapsulates all the Sempiternal questions. And this one's from Ben Palmer. He says, chasing the snare drum sound on Sempiternal is a big part of what got me properly into recording. Could you shed some light on how it was captured and what your mindset was? Certainly. Well, first of all, Brian Robbins was the mixing engineer on that project. And Brian has been working with me for eight years. In fact, he started as an assistant. He's an extremely talented engineer. He's a great mixing engineer. He he hears things a certain way. And at that time and place, Brian had just started really working with me on a full-time basis. He had been, he started as a guy that ran the studio and so we had a lot of practice in the in the months coming up to that record. And Brian really had a chance to work every day on his craft too. So when the record came in the door, we knew that it was a really good record. And it's funny we should we talk about that snare drum because like we put our best foot forward with that record when we sent the mix in. And the very first comment we get we got was, can we change the snare drum? Wow, that's hilarious. Because we thought the snare drum, what we had going on was a lot of body to the snare drum. It was dark and it was fat and thick, but it had the crack in the top end. And Brian had nailed this to the wall. And the first thing they did was change it 
And of course, you know, we did because we weren't going to argue with them. Terry Date actually wrote me a note that he felt that we had missed the boat on it and we should make it brighter. And of course, Brian, it took him maybe, I, I want to say, I'm, I'm going to say it took Brian 10 seconds to change it. And we fired the mix back off and they were like jumping up and down like this is the best thing they've ever heard. But I would, I would credit, you know, Brian a lot for basically having the intuition to, to work really hard with me on that project straight through. And we, we went through multiple mixes of different songs and it was really hard because of the amount of tracks. There was at least 200 tracks on that record. So every day was a challenge. And we only did one recall, which is pretty good, you know, when you consider. And the recall, literally, it took two hours to recall or three hours to recall it, maybe 15 minutes to fix it. It was a tiny little thing. But... You know, the, the snare drum was born out of a lot of other things. And, and in a way, I'm really happy we, we went with what they had. But equally so, I feel like what we had to begin with was just as good, if not better. It's interesting because it kind of has become a legendary snare. And people fucking love it. Well, David, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been awesome talking to you. And I'm sure we could have gone on for another two hours if if we wanted to. But uh, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. And um, I'd love to talk to you again at some point in the future. So have a great rest of your day. You too, my friend. Take care. Welcome back, Mr. David Bendeth. Thank you for taking the time to go through these questions. Because for those of you guys listening, uh, we finished the first part of the podcast. It's actually pretty long. If you're listening to this point, then, you know, as you know, that the episode is almost two hours long and I wanted to respect David's time um, just because I did. However, you guys asked so many questions. We weren't able to get to all of them. I spoke to David online about it and offered him the chance to come back at some point and to just cover your questions. Some of them are really, really good. And he was generous enough to suggest that we just do it now, like two days later. So here we are. So, David, thank you for your time again, and welcome back. It's great to be back. And I was just telling you that this is probably going to be good for a for a long trip over the ocean on an airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ab- absolutely. <laughs> this, I, I was telling you, though, I really do think that longer-form podcasts do real well, which is interesting because with uh, the advent of internet streaming and YouTube and all that, uh, one of the common wisdoms for a long time was keep everything short, keep it short, keep your videos short, nobody wants something long, but I think that that's, that maybe that might have been true at one point in time, but but our, uh, I think our, that's kind of underestimating the intellectual ability of the audience, um, and maybe there, there's a theory that with the way that the evening news has degenerated into just like people yelling at each other, and there's like no place on TV or really in the news anymore to get anything intelligent. People have shifted over to podcasts to uh you know to replace that and it's not necessarily podcasts about the news it's just podcasts about stuff that they're interested in and they've replaced hours and hours of taking in info through 
the ways they used to through listening to podcasts about topics they really, really like. And then the other thing that people say is the reason that podcasts are doing great is because for years, people have are used to watching the news or network TV or radio, things that are very sanitized. And there's no rules on a podcast. You can say whatever the fuck you want. And that's what's great about it. And what's, the creators love it because there's no, there's no boss. There's no, you know, you're, there's no corporation that's going to pull out the advertising. Like, you are free. This medium's totally free. And I think the public has been starved for that. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think even, even with YouTube, you're able to see things on YouTube right now that you haven't seen a year ago. Absolutely. A lot of them are an hour, an hour and a half, whatever they are, interviews, whatever it is. So it, I liken it to, uh, 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 this is, I guess, when Amazon started and they started th that idea with uh, somebody reading a book to you. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and that really did well for a while. I think it's kind of like somebody reading a book to you in a way. It is. And actually, audiobooks are also doing great. Um, I love them. I absolutely love them. And... I guess for me personally, I love this format because I, I used to really like watching some of the great interviewers on TV, like Charlie Rose, or I even, you know, I used to listen to Howard Stern. I thought he was a great interviewer, but when Howard Stern was on NBC or, uh, you know, there was only so far he could go. I mean, I know that he walked the line a lot, but there was only so far he could go. And uh, with Charlie Rose interviews, like he did real well within his confines, but there's only so far those guys could go. And so now that uh, they've moved off of uh, off of those formats, like Howard Stern's interviews have gotten so much better. It's just I just love the fact that people can be honest. It's it's great. With that. Let's uh let's get to these questions. The first one is from Donald Spack, and it's a bit of a long one. Uh, says, "Could you talk a little bit about the Candiria records you did? They are much better sounding records than the ones that came before, but also slightly less technical from a performance standpoint. Did you work with them on simplifying the arrangements in order to achieve more impact, or are they already going?" in that direction and was it difficult to or was it a difficult process to get them performing at their best after the van accident oh okay yeah so that was the this is the first record that i uh, was made with them after i think they put out three or four previous albums um and this was the first record they put out since they had a a terrible terrible accident with a van uh on the new york thruway which ended up rolling and everybody ended up in the hospital and it was, you can imagine, it was a massive lawsuit. And the name of the record and the premise for the record was What Doesn't Kill You Will Make You Stronger. And that's the name of the album. And so when we made this record, we did it in New York um, at this great studio at the time called uh, Mirror Image, which was a, a holdover from the original Hit Factory. The very first Hit Factory was on 42nd Street in Times Square. And these guys had taken it over and sort of made a rap room out of it. So... This record we made in that room, and yeah, I mean, we really worked a lot. The, first of all, the drummer in the band is insane. Can he's just an amazing drummer, and he wanted to play everything, you know, no, no uh, 
messing around with anything and he could in fact you know everybody in the band was great and it was also a record where the singer wanted to switch over um from screaming to singing this is like 2002 and so he ended up over at my place for about two weeks and we ended up writing four songs together him and i and you know lyrics and melody and, and i think some of the music was written but we wanted to try and get on the radio um and so that record uh, became an incredibly technical record. The beauty of the record for me was pretty well every record I went on to do after this record I did with the guitars tuned to a D or a C, a B or an A sharp. And this record was in E standard with a couple of tracks in E flat. So it was standard tuning and it was still heavy as hell. And I couldn't figure out wow. for the life of me how it got to be that heavy in the key of E. It was mind-boggling. Um, but that's the key they played in. And uh, the bass player, I think he was in a, right after that, he went to a band called Poison the Well. Um, but everybody in that band was desperate to make a great record. And it was a lot of hard work and a lot of fun. And maybe one of the best technical records I think I've ever done as far as playing goes. Great. This is a question from Henrik Oud, who is, uh, I don't know if you know him, actually. He's uh, actually a really great, uh, really great metal producer and mixer. He says that you have a quote out there that says, of course every studio has a lexicon for ADL, which I love. I'm not using it on the drums, just on vocals. On drums, I'm using an AMS reverb. And he's wondering, what's your favorite program for vocals on the 480L? And the same for drums with the AMS RMX-16. You know, the lexicon I've used for years, obviously it's a, it's a, a double-sided stereo. So you're, you're, one side, I always love to use... Um, an eighth note delay reverb with about two or three seconds. I loved it when the vocal was clear and the reverb just came a little bit later and you time it. And especially for ballads, it's a it's an incredible tool for that. And I had learned that years ago watching people delay reverb. And so you'd always get that clear vocal with, with a bit of space on it. Um, but we ended up using it mostly uh that tool as a wood room or a small wood room and i would use it for back we would use it for background vocals you know it it i guess i should have used it for more but then you end up with a lot of different reverbs and you get used to the way they sound so that that i used the wood room or any there's a, there was also a great uh program that sounded like a toilet on it like a quick kind of a slap room and i like that and then you know, originally when we got it, we used it on drums, on the snare drum. You know, we would use um, probably, again, the wood room. And then the AMS came. This is probably 2005. And I'd been using an AMS since 1982. Um, I think it was the very first sampling unit I ever used. And we used it for the snare. Uh, when we first got the the AMS unit itself, we would use it to go up and down. So we would go like 99.9 to 101. And so it would duplicate what today is known as, you know, snare samples, because they wouldn't sound the same. They would fluctuate back and forth randomly. 
So the AMS was an incredible unit and you got to use an extend extender so you could sample for, I think originally it came, it was two or three seconds. Then you would get the extender. And I think it went literally to six or seven, which became great. Then they made this reverb, which I ended up buying. Um, and the sound that always blew my mind on it was the nonlinear. I love that sound. It, it was real. It sounded like a room. And again, it was the beauty of the reverb, which I liken to the um, to the sampling unit because it would randomize and and give you different sounds. So that blended with, let's say, an SBX ninety or what else do we use on reverb? I used to use the the the. Um, the, I can't remember the name of the Swedish company. I'm trying to remember it now. But we would use it for the longer reverbs or the S SBX90 for the longer reverb. And the AMS for the short, you know, the short room, that the, the actual room itself blended was a fantastic sound and is a fantastic sound. So hopefully that answers that. I believe so. All right, so Danny Salat has a multi-part question. So I'll just ask them one at a time. First of all, he said, yes, 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 in all capital letters and multiple exclamation points. He's very excited that you're on the podcast. So um, question number one is, how do you go about deciding the proper key and tempo for a song? Is it just feel for you? Do the bands get it? You know, I guess after working on so many songs in my career, I started to see um, very, very clear lines that I would always notice when writing the song itself. The first thing I noticed was that most songs, when they're written, are written too fast or too slow, one or the other. So I would always realize that whatever tempo I'd written the song, it was probably going to be wrong. And the second thing I noticed was that usually the key is too high. So the rule of thumb for me with this, first of all, when dealing with the tempo, would be to deal with the tuning first and then deal with the tempo. So the way I dealt with the the tuning would be, let's say that the singer wanted to sing the song in C. I would then try and tune the guitar to a C sharp or play it one half step up and then go down to the B, the tone. So I would notice, you know, when it got to the chorus, which one felt better, especially when you're starting to hit those high notes. And usually I would always err on the side of bringing the song down in pitch to make it believable. And I also had to consider the live show. You know, when you're singing live, it's not easy to hit those notes that you're going to hit in the studio. So in regards to the tempo, I would use the gauge of the lyric and how well the phrasing of the verse fit in the groove. And I would speed up or slow down and see, I would go up two or three clicks and I would go down two or three clicks and do exactly the same thing I would do on the key. I would always want to hear it both ways. And then I would ask the singer, you know, what is good for you? Do you feel comfortable? And I really never cared much about what a drummer, bass player, guitar player felt a song was too fast or too slow unless it was an instrumental song. So hopefully that answers that question. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense um, because if the vocals sound rushed or, you know, lazy, it's going to kill it. 
Yeah, and I don't think musicians realize that, what their singers go through when they have to get up on stage, you know, every night for two years if it's a success. And singing keys, that if they have a slight cold or a slight cough, they're never going to be able to sing. But the always the issue would be, is the verse melody too low? And I would never really care that much about it being a little bit strenuous and care way more about whether the chorus was going to deliver in the right pacing and, and the right key that was comfortable for the singer to sing in without the voice crack. Makes perfect sense. Okay, so part two of his question is, you love reverbs. What's your ratio between verbs and room sounds? And do you send live tracks to these reverbs? Do you usually gate these tracks? Do you EQ your returns? Well, there's multiple answers. Yeah, God. You know, I mean, every track is different. But I would say the rule of thumb would be that the room was always a big part of the drum sound. It was from the beginning. It has been my whole career. And the blending of that room is so important. The issue would always become, you know, you would get into a room and you'd love the way it sounded. And then the first thing that would happen in the mix is that you would have the snare in the, in, in the mix and you didn't want it to sound like the other drums. So you would add a different kind of reverb to it. So it's really just a matter of taste and blend how you want to do it. Um, many times if you're doing like a raw band, the idea would be to not add a lot of reverb to it and use the room and compress it. And certain reverbs definitely clash with room sounds, you know, especially if you're in a smaller room and you've got a long reverb. It, it Sometimes it sounds very strange to me. But I would stick to five or six different reverbs and I would know the parameters, I guess. There were parts in my career where I got where I got really pissed off at using the same gear because it doesn't work for every song. But at the same time, because we were in the same room for a long time, we knew it worked. So I think the rule of thumb, for me at least, again, I would go back to tempo. You know, if you're dealing with a slow song and you want to mix something in with a room, you have to almost understand that the room at that point is no longer relevant. And what I always loved to do was was record the toms and put them, uh, and the, the kit, and put it almost on a separate track and then be able to blend it with that long snare drum reverb, which would be in a, in a, you know, in a ballad, for example, or a, or a mid-tempo song. So I think we're dealing with the question now of lengths. And if you're dealing with a punk pop song, the same thing, you know, you've recorded in this big room and you've got big, big, long room drum sounds, two, three seconds, but you know, your tempo's 186. So there, there goes your room. So you have to almost recreate a short room that works with the kit. And that's another challenge because you can't get rid of a room sometimes. So again, you got to be very careful. This is where you start to use, you know, what we used to do was always use Keepex gates for fast songs so that we, so that the drums didn't bleed into each other or any kind of a gate and then create your own room sound. Great. Thank you. Um, his last question is how many layers of vocals do you like to have and who's in charge of writing them? The writing, I think he means writing think, the parts. Yeah. He actually looks like he said wiring. But I think he meant writing. Oh, yeah. Okay. So who's in charge of, of writing them? I'll address that first. Like, what you always do to guarantee you're going to get what you need is you're first going to want to record your lead vocal, and that's going to become what I call God in the track. 
What I usually love to do when I'm doing background vocals is first of all, create an octave down of that vocal if possible. And then, and then also uh, doubles. And then you want to use either your third harmony, your fifth harmony, or a moving harmony. Now, I've gone back and forth over the years as far as placement goes. And, it, you know, with rock, it's highly dangerous, again, because you're dealing with a lot of information, guitars, keyboards, uh, cymbals, room, all going to the sides, far left, far right. Now, once you start putting your vocals in those instances, they start to get washed up in the instrument. So, again, I you know, if I'm dealing with, you know, a larger chorus, I'm probably going to stereoize at, you know, nine and, and, and three. Um, and then, you know, keeping things in tight, 10 and two, as far as like your, your doubles go, having your harmonies at, at say 10 and two, and then having everything else kind of spread out just a little bit or off center so that you can hear it. Um, the biggest challenge for background vocals, and this is very, very common, is having the lead singer sing the background vocals. Because the truth is that a background vocals are an instrument no different than a guitar or a piano sonically. And so they have to have some kind of texture. When you're using your lead singer to do vocals, there is no different texture. So things start to sound exactly the same because the same tonality is in it, unless you can recreate them with the singer using a different kind of a voice. In the old days, they used to have professional background singers that would come in and know exactly what to do when shadowing background vocals on a track by giving it some kind of a dimension through sound. Today, the only way you can do it is to manipulate the vocal. And even sometimes when you manipulate it and you tune it, you're going to end up with a lot of tracks that run into themselves and they're going to sound very, very samey and they're not going to cut properly because the texture is exactly the same as what's in the lead vocal. And sometimes, you know, can ruin the lead vocal by taking all the innuendo out of it. Great. Thank you. I think I just recommended everybody using a different background vocalist. Yeah, I mean, you know what? It ha I've done that many times. It's been it works great. So I think that's actually great advice. Uh, this one is from Michael Bivens, which is what kind of systems do you have in place to ensure the record making process goes smoothly? I'm thinking along the lines of assistants and engineers, file transfer, mix notes, tracking and mixing, session prep, anything to make your process more efficient. Well, okay. First of all. You can prepare and prepare, and there's always going to be something, and you learn this by the many, many mistakes. I would say the number one mistake that producers are making and engineers are making today is going into the studio, having the band unprepared, not necessarily themselves. Because as you know, if we have a ground lift problem, it's easy, you know. But if the verse has not been written for the song, it's not easy. And most of the mistakes or unpreparedness come by having songs not completed before going into the studio and then bands and artists deciding to write in the studio, which ends up to be an extremely expensive process and really a fucking complete waste of time and money. And everybody gets frustrated, especially if you don't finish the song. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I've <laughs> been there. Having said that, a producer has to be very, very careful that the most important way for them to be prepared is to have the artist prepared. In other words, if it's a drummer, 
you're going to want to make sure that they've got heads on the drums and they, that they've got you know the right sticks and they've got the right cymbals if it's a guitar player you're going to want to make sure that the band has the guitars intonated or you're going to have guitars ready for them to play and the right size strings are on the guitars and you've got the right amplifiers or you've got the right microphones and as far as the bass player the same thing intonation the right size strings is the bass player going to be playing bass or is the guitar player going to be playing bass all those things have to be prepared ahead of time. Lyric sheets, number one. I don't go into the studio anymore until I see the lyrics before I get into the studio. I want to know what the song's written about. I want the band to understand what they're going to be playing about or what they're, what the song, what the idea of the song that we're getting across is emotionally. That's very, very important to me. And then, of course, all the technical side of things, which I usually, not usually, I always leave to the engineers because... They're the ones that have there. You're only as good as the equipment that you're using. And a lot of times we'll get into the studio and we'll have a computer down, a microphone down, a part, a, per, a piece of gear that's just not working. And you don't know why. And, you know, you have to be prepared for those things and get immediately to workarounds so that you can get through the session. Um, when you're dealing with large consoles, you know, those things are always prone to break. And, you're, you know, let's say that you're doing a mix and you've got, you know, 48 strips of which nine of them decide they're not going to work that day. Then you've got to start to, you know, to, to malt tracks and you have to you, you put put uh, tracks into what, what we call static mode where you know they're not going to be written. Let's say it's a, a shaker or, a, you know, you, workarounds are really important and knowing where those workarounds are before you start your mix is very important. So... I'm saying that you can prepare, but the most important thing you can prepare is, is the artist and the song. And, you know, when you're dealing with singers, you got to prepare for bad weather, colds, all sorts of problems, you know, how high they get, whatever it's going to be, how the night before was. I mean, there's certain things you can't prepare for, but I, I would say preparation really starts the day of pre-production. Great. Okay, so this... I can't read this guy's name. It's in Russian. Like, it's literally written out in Russian. There's no chance. <laughs> uh, so, Russian dude, just know that uh, we've got your back here. I'm actually, you know what? I'm going to translate it. And let's see, maybe Google can help me out with this one. I'd love to get people's names on here, but no, not finding it. Okay. The question is, David is my number one producer and mixer. Ben has some amazing growls on both Phobia and Dear Agony. Did you use the same mic as the one for his clean vocals? And do you remember what the recording chain or mixing chain was for them? Did it change over time for both records, since both records are a few years apart? Um. Okay, I'm going to go back. I mean, yeah, he's definitely got the grr. First of all, he's a big guy. I think he's like 6'3". And uh, he used to love listening to corn and imitating that. I think that's where he learned his grr. Um, as far as the microphone goes, with him, it would we would never change. Like, we would just use the same microphone pretty well from what I remember. And I'm trying to think, both records, we had a road with him and we had a, um, a U47, a mirror image, we had one. And I think an 87... But it would always be the same microphone. Um, and he would just be part of his performance. I mean, one thing we had to do with him was back him off about a foot 
that's for sure, or get him to turn his head to the side pretty drastically. But mostly he would bring it, and the chain, I, I think, if I remember right, I think it was just an SSL Mike Pre with an 1176. That's what we used every record. Oh, okay, cool. That always works. Let's see here. Linus Corneliuson is wondering, I could never mix a song without at least blending a bit of your trigger two snares. How is it possible to get so much low end in a snare without it sounding muddy or dull? Is there anything you do that you think others don't that makes it possible? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what snare they're talking about in particular, but for the SSD slight, I mean, Brian and I worked on that. You know, the one thing Brian had and always had uh, when he started working with me was he he figured out really quickly how to get a lot of bottom end on everything, <laughs> whether it was the bass or the snare or the kick, you know, loads of it. And it was just a matter of finding balances and stuff. One thing that we really, or I really insisted on, on our state pack that no one had ever done because there was the Chris Lord Algae pack and the Terry Day pack, but there were no samples. And I was thinking to myself, well, what's the purpose of these packs unless there's any samples on it? And so it was a very, very difficult process in the sense that you had to have 10 different hits, different levels. So it would start very low, you know, so you could do a fill or a snare or make, you know, a fill get louder. And it would go all the way to, let's say, number 10 or whatever it is. And we would make eight, nine, and 10 would have the samples. So everything before that really didn't have anything. But then when you got to the loudest part of it, there would be a ton of bottom, like out of nowhere. And it was that slap, I feel, that gave us. And again, on that pack specifically, we only had two snare drums and one kick drum and one set of tom-toms. Everybody else had multiple kits. But I just said, look, screw it. Let's give them what they want. They're going to want a kick-ass drum kit with a ton of slap, slapping. You know, the snare would slap you and the kick would slap you. And we ended up using all of our gear that we would normally use, like whether it was ADR or all our reverbs. We put all the effects on there. I mean, we slammed everything. And, and, I, and I figured, what the hell? You know, like, what's the difference? It's not like you're going to put, you know, you're, you, you know, if you put your samples on there, someone's going to steal it and make one of your songs. Who cares? So I think we were the first sample pack to literally go with, at the time, what was known as our samples. And it hadn't been done that much. So it was exciting. Great answer. This one's from Charlie Sandberg. As a guy with a prolific career, not only as a producer, but an A&R as well, what can aspiring producers do to help bands have a more successful release? Is it wise to be helping independent bands plan the rollout of a record in terms of promotion and distribution? Producers today have to be writers, number one, songwriters. And then if you happen to be able to mix or you happen to be able to be an engineer or whatever it is, all of that is good. But there's always that great saying you have to go back and remember, jack of all trades, master of none. If there's one thing I did in my career that I regret, it was trying to do too many things at once and doing a half-assed job at them. In other words, it was really difficult to produce a record and at the same time mix another one. Or it was very difficult to write a song and then produce a band at the same time. It was The two don't go together. So trying to be the promoter of an artist after you produce them, 
I guess it's somewhat of a necessity today, but we're so, it's like, and I, people are going to hate me when I say this, but I'm going to just come out and say it because I don't care. Say it, yeah. Like, everybody that's a mixer today is apparently a mastering engineer. And I've worked with some of the best at mastering engineers in the world. Bob Ludwig, Ted Jensen, you know, George Marino. I mean, I could keep going. Tom Coyne. Like, there's a deal. Like, they don't know anything really about mixing. <laughs> and I really don't know anything about mastering. And you'll never see, you know, any real mixer's name on a, as a mastering engineer on a record. Now, let's back up because I know what's going to happen next. Everyone's going to say, yeah, but, you know, no one can afford those rates. And it's impossible to, to, uh, to, to be uh, able to afford those guys. So we just do what we can and we try and mimic it. But the truth is, in my opinion that there's those guys and then there's everybody else. And we're not talking about just level. I'm talking about specifically EQ, phasing, you know, center information, sending stereo EQ to the sides. Like how many mixing engineers know really about that? And the truth about mastering is that most of those guys learn the hard way by making mistakes. You know, what they do is a feel, no different than a mixer. And so to pretend you can do all that is crazy, I think. You know, I don't know how you teach somebody how to master. I don't know. Um, but I think a lot of these guys that I love all started with vinyl. And that was another thing, you know, like it was a different sound. And that vinyl, you know, integrated itself into digital world and became a lot more complicated, if you want, because there's no tape involved. So I think trying to do all those things is dangerous. I completely agree with you, actually. One last question here. Okay, yeah, from John Tate. In regards to your music career and engineering, what advice would you give your 35-year-old self? I, I, I think it's a good, a good final question. I, I have to take the word engineering because, again, I, I keep going back to the fact that I've never, ever pretended to be an engineer in the true sense of the word, at all. Everything I learned from an engineering standpoint, I learned by watching great, great engineers around me, and I would always surround myself with that. It was never my passion. So to wind back the clock, I would, I would take that sentence and replace engineer with producer and mixer, and certainly songwriter. I would tell myself to write way more songs, and I would tell myself to write way more different styles of songs. And in regards to production, I would have told my 35-year-old self the same thing I'm telling myself today, which is why the hell didn't you take an arranging course for strings, which is something I've always regretted doing. And I feel like that is such a huge part of, of being able to go back to like what we just talked about, which was background vocals, or being able to come up with harmonies in seconds by having an arrangement degree. Uh, and also being able to do film soundtrack, which is very, very integral to string arrangements, horn arrangements, background vocals. So I would chastise myself for not taking an arranging course. Um, and I feel that at that point in my career, the great thing about it was I was working all the time. And the bad thing about it was that I was working all the time. And once you work all the time, 
you lose touch with what's happening very, very quickly. In other words, you're in the studio. You don't really know music's changing. Sure, you can go home and turn on your, you know, turn on a video or something. But the truth is, music is changing all the time. So just because you get, by the time you get great at something, something's changed. So I would say trying to keep up with what I was doing with my career and trying to be interesting was a challenge for me. Um, when I was in A&R, it wasn't because I, that was my job pretty well all the time. But once you're in the studio, you're, you're segregated from the population. And so I would say, I wish I would have got out more. I wish I, wish I would have met more bands. I wish I would have seen more live shows. I wish I would have had more friends in different parts of the industry. Interesting. That's a great, great answer. Well, David, thank you for taking the time to answer these questions and come back on. Of course, yeah. Yeah. These have been great answers, and I appreciate you being just so honest and so forward about everything. Kind of like back to what we were originally saying, where I think that the reason that people are gravitating towards this medium is because of the honesty um, and, be, you know, because there's no rules as opposed to traditional TV or radio. I love it that we can take advantage of that and really get to the heart of the matter. So thank you again. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. And we'll talk again soon. Okay. Thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Empire Ears. In collaboration with Grammy-winning producers, engineers, and their family of touring musicians, Empire Ears has developed a line of in-ear monitors that deliver what you need for every mix. When it comes to unrivaled stage clarity or needing a flat and honest reference for your latest studio mix, Empire Ears has got you covered no matter where you find yourself. 